Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia and I'm sitting here with uh, Joel Nayum, our nonfiction category manager. And our guest today is the 2020 Stellar Prize winner and author of See What You Made Me Do, Jess Hill. Welcome, Jess. Greetings. How does it feel, Jess? Yeah, amazing. Um, you know, I'm, I've known about it for quite some time. So I, I actually got told like three weeks ago or maybe even a month ago now and because uh, they had to, they, usually they'll give you a few days' notice you know, so you can write a speech and that you don't end up writing a speech for something that you're not actually going to win, which, you know, can be depressing. Um, so they, they gave me all that notice because they had to really come up with a whole new way to do this um, by putting it online. I mean, this was something that the Stellar Prize had never done before. So they kind of needed all that time for us all to get organised. But the off the offshoot of that was that, you know, I had to sign like a non-disclosure agreement um, to say I wouldn't tell anyone. So I, I think they let me tell one person. And, uh, and so I was just sitting on it for so long. And then suddenly it just sort of gets announced and then everyone knows, and it's it's really <laughs> overwhelming. <laughs> I, I bet it's such a it's a big prize now. I think we actually sell more books off the back of the seller prize than most of the other prizes nowadays. So <laughs> amazing how that has developed in the space of eight years. Mm. It's just like it's such a testament to what they the mission of the prize. I was talking to my husband about this the other day that, and, uh, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't know if I'm actually correctly assessing the other prizes, but it feels to me like a lot of the other literary prizes, like say, for example, the Miles Franklin, that even though a lot of promotion does come off the back of that, it really is about the financial prize and that it was, you know, it was a bequest from Miles Franklin from her will to really, you know, give authors the money to do the writing. Um, and whereas the Stella came into being with a mission to promote women writers mm. and the amount of work that goes into promoting the long list and then the short list and then the winner is just unbelievable. Um, and it's so, it creates this community feeling, like it sort of makes you feel like you're part of this group of writers um, and that are all being supported um, by this by this fantastic prize, whether or not you win. It's incredible. And I'm in contact with one of the organisers of the Stella Prize and she's still so keen to push the long list and they feel so strongly about it. It's really a prize where you feel like the people behind it are really in it for the right reasons. Yes. It's incredible. Absolutely. And it feels like they're recognising something that has, not in, in this instance in particular, it's not always the case with the Stella, but um, this in this instance they're recognising something that is um, that has had a cultural impact mm. in the in the last 12 months. So, um, you know, for the people who don't at home who don't know about your book, I wondered if you could give us a quick, a quick um, precy of it, because um, I'm sure many more of them are going to read it now. Yeah. So, essentially, you know, on the surface of it, this is a book about domestic abuse and the phenomenon of it, both inside. Australian homes and also um, as it works its way through the legal system um, and through police and etc. But really, I guess what I wanted to write this book about was 
about our culture, the way that we manage intimacy, the way that we manage power and accountability. You know, um, there's quite a lot of analysis in the book about um, the motivating um, force of shame as a backgrounder to abuse and and just the bad things that we do um, to each other in relationships and families that don't even necessarily get categorised as domestic abuse. It goes into a great deal of um, analysis about patriarchy and what, what even is patriarchy because it's a term that, that gets thrown around a lot now, now that it's back in vogue, but it's something that a lot of people don't necessarily understand. It also goes into a pretty long and detailed um, analysis of colonization, our history, you know, more recent history, and the history of domestic abuse in, um, in I guess, you know, 17th and 18th century Britain and how that was essentially imported into Australia. And But it really, I guess, this is a book that I really wanted people to come out of feeling a type of buoyancy I didn't want them to feel sort of really crushed by, you know, a collection of grim stories and, you know, an exposure of a of a terrible phenomenon. I wanted them to feel, A, the courage, resilience and, you know, positive resistance of victim survivors, and I'm talking about adults and children here, and I also wanted them to feel like this is a problem that can be solved. And so in in a number of the chapters... I'm I'm really weaving in different solutions. How can we actually alleviate this? Whether it is how do we change the fact that only 20% of victims who are going through this right now report to police? What are some ideas that are being used around the world that are working to increase that reporting rate and and thereby actually increase the safety of these people? Um, you know, what are some of the responses that are working to reduce domestic abuse overall? So I I think that the book, in the end, what a lot of people have been saying about it is it's actually a really hopeful book and it's a book that can feel in its own way, even though it can be incredibly confronting, it also teaches a lot um, teaches us a lot about ourselves um, and gives a lot of hope for what, you know, what we can actually do both as individuals and as communities and as, as countries. Yeah, definitely. Um are people mm. receiving the message of the book in the way that you've just outlined that you hope they would? Yeah, and in all different fascinating ways too. Um, mm. So many, like I've just received so many messages from so many different people who are either experiencing domestic abuse themselves, who have perpetrated it, who have grown up with it, but also who are um, dealing with it in their own professional capacity as psychiatrists or as, you know, workers in, um, in a shelter. Just the breadth of, um, of the feedback has been astonishing. And even I've done quite a bit of work with uh, magistrates, especially in Victoria, off the back of this book, um, teaching them or, you know, it sort of, you know, help talking to them about coercive control especially. And the feedback I've got from magistrates has just been so um just so wonderful because uh, you know a number of them have said i thought that i understood domestic abuse but i'm now realizing that there's so much more to it that i didn't quite understand and that's from really progressive magistrates who have been doing a great job you know not just people who are um who are giving out all the kind of shitty judgments that we read about in the papers so i just feel like the book has this capacity to not only educate but also to just give people a roadmap 
for what's going on either in their own personal lives, in their friends' or family's life, or in their professional life, and to be able to give a better sense of understanding to people who are going through this and hopefully, you know, start to respond to it in a much more compassionate and effective way. Mm. And it's the it's the first time that a work of journalism has won the Stella Prize, and I can't help but think that's part of the reason, is that it does cut through on that issue. And particularly mm-hmm. in the way that it has sold, I think, you know, we were talking before we got on, on before we started recording about how well the book has sold for the past year, which I think people would probably be, people who aren't familiar with it would be surprised to hear perhaps mm-hmm. that a book about domestic abuse would, would have been so commercially successful. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel now with critical, obvious critical success as well, that this is sort of, a vindication of your argument at the beginning of the book about how widespread this is and how not really under the surface it actually is. Yeah, totally. You know, it's it's interesting. I've always known, or when I say always, I mean for the last five years since I've been covering it, I've known that there's a huge readership um, who is interested in this subject, and that's because I've I've sat on um, various roundtables with newspaper editors who have talked about when they sort of launched campaigns about domestic abuse that their the number of readers that came to those articles online just far surpassed their expectations. I remember one paper saying that they launched a campaign. It was quite a few years ago now. I can't remember exactly which year. Some royal buffs will remember the year. Um, but essentially they they launched a campaign the same day that the, the first royal prince was born, uh, um, William and Kate. I think it's George. Anyway, you'll have to excuse me there. But, uh, but <laughs> essentially they, they thought, oh, well, we've worked so hard on this campaign, but it's not going to it's just going to be completely overshadowed by the birth of the first prince. Um, But the campaign got more hits than the royal birth. Wow. That's incredible. That's what what I'm talking about. It's just like this is an issue that affects millions of Australians directly and it affects all of us indirectly in ways that we can't even really know or imagine, um, whether it be that there are people in our own families who've experienced that and it's affected their behavior and their chemistry or it's that you know that we are affected we're all affected by the effect that this has on society you know um the health issue that it is the rise in homelessness the the effect of of you know really widespread family trauma um that the really a core dysfunctionality in our society and that's why i say at the end of the book that if we were to actually really tackle domestic abuse, it would be the greatest nation-building exercise in Australia's history. Yeah, definitely. And, like, what I think is so powerful and so good about this book is that knowledge is power and See What You Made Me Do is opening up the framework of resources for people to not only articulate what's happening to them and to seek help, but also for society as a whole to gain a better understanding. Yeah, Um, that's right. Yeah. Why do you think it's been so hard historically for us to collectively understand um, just how domestic abuse and coercive control works, especially when so many people have been affected by it? I think there's just been a real resistance um, to take the stories of victim survivors seriously um, and to and the, the project 
of victim blaming that has been going for centuries in Western civilization, um, but but certainly has been has really picked up pace um, in the twentieth century and was fueled particularly by um, by figures like Freud. That 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 instinct that we have to blame the victim and to exonerate the perpetrator is a large part of why we couldn't face this. And that's why what's happened in the last, you know, I guess five or six years, certainly in the last decade, has been just revolutionary because not only have we had, like we've had the Inst- Royal Commission into Institutionalised Child Sexual Abuse, we've had the Me Too movement, we've had, um, we've had so, you know, everything, the enormous um, uh, awareness raising around domestic abuse, um, which was really, you know, Rosie Batty and the, and the murder of Luke Batty was the real lightning rod for, uh, but that had been really building for a long time. So all of this has been this total reckoning with with trauma, the trauma that that is the background of this nation, um, but with also it's like been a slow education for the public to take the stories of victims seriously and to start pointing fingers at the perpetrators, you know, and to start bringing those perpetrators out into the light. Um, so I think that that's, that has been a total paradigm shift and we're 100% not there yet, um, you know, in terms of the paradigm has not shifted, but it certainly is shifting. Um, and I feel like, you know, part of what I wrote in the introduction was that, you know, the, the world has started listening to victims. It's like we've suddenly been reawakened to the idea that this is all still going on. This stuff that we thought we'd sort of solved and that we were too civilised and modern for is all still going on at an incredible rate. And it's like we're all wondering why weren't we told and, oh, my God, someone explain this to me. Mm, that's really interesting. Yeah. It's inter- interesting to think about it, especially right now, in terms of it being a health crisis, mm. and you, you've done that pretty consistently. But I wonder if, if is it a useful comparison or, or contrast to see how we're responding to COVID-19 in, in light of this, and especially as it is such a, I guess, we're all moving into the domestic sphere at the moment, and yeah. I, I imagine it's having a huge impact on the statistics. Yeah, well, and you know, I guess so. For me, we've we've start we've kind of looked at domestic abuse as a public health issue since around the nineties. That's become like a, it's become a global approach, really, um, and that's because there there's a particular structured response to public health issues that seems to really work, and it is applicable in domestic um, abuse because there are so many different facets to it, um, but particularly around response um, and prevention. So those are the sorts of things they responding to the existing problem and preventing it from happening. That's the sort of approach that we've taken to smoking or drink driving. And that's the sort of approach that we're taking to COVID-19. I mean, obviously the COVID-19 response is um is is radical. It's um it's been pretty immediate um and totally nation-changing and and um necessary. Um I think the thing with domestic abuse is that it's sort of like climate change in the sense that everybody knows that it's happening and you see the worst 
sort of um, examples of it. Every now and then you see catastrophic bushfires or you see the family murder in Brisbane of Hannah Clark and her three children, um, you know, and you suddenly go, oh, my God, this is a terrible issue. This is all really happening. We need to do something about this. Um, but then it kind of goes to bed again, you know, and it goes under the surface again. But it's all still happening at the same rate, you know, but because it's not right in our faces every single day, like, you know, COVID-19 is, um, we don't, it's like we can't keep the momentum up or we can't decide to make those really difficult political choices um, in order to really confront it properly. It's like there's a reluctance um, of the law to comprehensively deal with something that's so squarely in the private sphere of people's lives as opposed to the public. Absolutely. And, you know, it's really interesting there's, um, I think it's, so in America, after the revolution and declaration of independence, um, so privacy became a really, really important part of the whole American story. Um, whereas before, so domestic abuse prior to that time was seen as a public, a public, you know, order issue, a public safety threat. Um, and if it was, I'm not, I mean, obviously I'm not saying that domestic abuse was just perfectly handled back then or whatever, but it actually became much harder after privacy was really foregrounded as a human right. And what privacy ended up doing was really preventing, um, domestic abuse issues from being, um, from being confronted by the courts. I mean, prior to that, prior to the declaration of independence and when this really was a public safety issue, You'd even see disgruntled wives, obviously, who had the money to do so, but posting advertisements in the newspaper about their no-good husband. I mean, it was like it was a really different world um, that we were living in. And and since then there's been, you know, it, we come to the, co the current day or the last 20 or 30 years, you know, I was told by a magistrate the other day that around when she started um, in on the bench in, in about the 80s and 90s, um, there were magistrates who would say, I would never remove a man from his own home, no matter what he did, you know. That oh. was the, the, the right to be in your own home was absolutely paramount. And, you know, that whole thing of uh, a man's house is his castle was essentially, you know, almost the backbone of the law. I'll just read you this one quote from the book. This is at the opening of State of Emergency, um, which is looking at the justice system response. And it's from Judith Herman, who's an amazing psychiatrist. Um, and she writes that the legal system is designed to protect men from the superior power of the state, but not to protect women or children from the superior power of men. Jesus. Man, that is, that, that's quite confronting. Mm. And that's sort of where we're, that's where we're, what we're grappling with right now. And sometimes we see the justice system absolutely do the right thing and do the thing that is most in line with current social norms. And then, but, you know, a lot of the time we don't. And the, and I think, you know, even outside of the justice system, but, but boiling down to people's sort of circles, their own circle of family and friends, you know, the number of victim survivors who've come up to me after a talk and told me that they not when they left their relationship, they lost all their friends because everybody sided with their partner um, because no one could truly believe that he'd done what she said he'd done. That's, I mean, that's the thing is we talk about the justice system not holding these perpetrators accountable, but where the, the least amount of accountability happens in those friends and family circles because it's the hardest place to have that.
I've definitely experienced that in my life with people yeah, I know. Right. Um, in and that it is, it's it's horrifying. I think it's so, it goes so deep into the culture. It's really hard to just pull it out. Yeah. It's not something that fits mm. separate to our culture. It feels like it's so deeply wound around everything that it's it's going to take you know something quite profound to eradicate it yeah um, well, i think the... that is what's happening that's you know i think that's what mm. the me too movement did was even though it didn't fix everything it sort of it, it jolted this norm you know that like and again to quote judith herman is that the idea that it's just easier to side with the perpetrator because the perpetrator asks that you do nothing whereas the victim asks that you share in the pain you share part of the burden of remembering um and that you and that you join with them uh, and now for a lot of people that's just too hard they're too busy it's too um they don't know who can know the truth you know better just to do nothing and by doing that you know sort of by absenting they're kind of siding with the perpetrator um whether they intend to or not yeah because there's that um common the like this whole thing that your book deals with is trying to reframe that question of why did she stay and, and instead ask why did he abuse her yeah that's right yeah and what is it about this reframing that you think can successfully lead to us addressing this level um addressing this issue sorry uh i think that you know when we constantly foreground the victim in these stories um for for better or worse you know we we foreground the victim often because they are the most um they are the most enthusiastic to be studied too you know they 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 want to be interviewed um well they I'm not talking about every victim but uh, you know victim survivors generally are much easier to get in contact with um they have a more reliable insight into what's happened in the relationship you know perpetrators generally do not want to be studied <laughs> um and 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 even if they did if, and especially if they were you know, particularly narcissistic personalities, what they tell you is not necessarily reliable, you know. So you're looking for a particular type of guy who's gone through a particular process um, to give you the kinds of insights that you feel like you can rely on. Um, and they're they're probably not the most hardcore perpetrators. So, so it's very difficult to really tell the story from the perpetrator's point of view without it just being complete whitewash of what's gone on. Um, but... I think that so for me, what I wanted to try to do in the absence of really being able to foreground perpetrators in a reliable way um, is that I just wanted to really zero in on that question, why does he do it? Um, and just for your listeners, I do also have a, a chapter on when women use violence, um, both as perpetrators and in self-defence, just so you know. Um, but I really wanted to really flesh out that question and not just, I guess, rest on the what I think is the reasonably easy and unsatisfying answer that, you know, he does it for power and control um, or he does it because he disrespects women or he does mm. it because he can. Um, you know, it's that's really satisfying in the sense that, oh, you're able to just tick and flick that, you know. It's like, okay, I get that. Um, next. Whereas when you actually, anyone who has known someone um, who has perpetrated family violence, someone who's been dear to them will know that there's a lot more going on into you know in the background for these individual men than than those sorts of answers belie. 
And so that's what I really wanted to try to do. Obviously, it had to be uh, both a generalization, but also only really tackle a few various aspects of why does he do that. Um, but things like humiliated fury, things, you know, linking things to patriarchy, they were all ways of getting a better understanding of how this how this abusiveness develops in someone who otherwise is born into a world ready to love. That's really fascinating. And I think one of the things reading the book that struck me as a man is that sense of sharing in some of the characteristics that all of these men who commit these abuses mm. have and that- by virtue of being in the culture and being a man. And I, I think most of the people who would deny that that's true are in some kind of denial, you know, that, um, that they're not ad- admitting to their own real feelings. And I think I mean, maybe women too, to a certain extent as well. Sure. Um, I, I think that's, a, and I think that's one of the great fascinating things about this book is how um, accessible you make it for people. Well, I think it's really important, you know, um, there was a really um, important shift in thinking on what causes abuse or what's the sort of root cause. Um, and that was uh, from the people in Duluth. Um, for, for your listeners who are familiar with domestic abuse, they'll know about like the power and control wheel. But also Duluth is where men's behaviour change programs kind of originally got designed. It's sort of the most, well, not originally got designed, but it's it's the most popular model of change program and they're they're people there they they worked with a lot of men in these programs and at first they really they just really had that whole he does it for power and control idea that was just in their heads um and every time a man would sort of present an alternative to that they'd be like you're just minimizing and excusing you know we're not interested in what you have to say we can't trust what you have to say but over time they started to realize like a lot of men don't identify with this idea that I just do it for power and control. And so they came up in the end, not only because they worked with men, but they started working with women who used violence in their relationships as well and started working with, you know, in in same-sex relationships, all this, you know, so they broadened out who they were working with. And what they came to is that basically abuse is rooted in the idea that someone, that somebody has um, is entitled to have power over their partner. Mm-hmm. So obviously that that sense of entitlement um, is is certainly kind of supercharged for men under patriarchy. It's what, you know, men get rewarded for showing that they can exert power over others. Women get less rewarded for doing that. Um, but, you know, still in some, certainly people will all be able to tell you about like a woman at work who rebels in having power over others. I mean, this is like this power over concept that is so central to patriarchy is a root cause of why abuse happens, whether it happens in same-sex relationships or heterosexual relationships. It's just that certain people get more rewarded for exerting that or or ha- feel like there is more expectation to exert power over their partners than others do. Um, so that was a really, really important shift, that it wasn't that they do it for power and control, but that there is inside them this belief that they are entitled to have power, even if they don't identify that consciously. Mm-hmm. Just listening to you speak, it's kind of confronting and mind-blowing, and it's clear just just how thoroughly you've researched this and just how deep you are in it. And you've been investigating it since 2014, is that correct? Yeah. How do you even begin to process the horror of this onslaught of information 
and the anger that it must have inspired in you in in terms of maintaining kind of journalistic objectivity but also personal mm. distance like how do you take care of yourself as a journalist and as a woman in the world mm. yeah well it's, it's weird because part of me felt like gee I'm lucky that I'm actually in a long-term relationship because god I'd hate to be dating right now you know with all <laughs> this knowledge in my head um yeah. but um but then on the other hand it was actually really challenging um to be in a long-term relationship because since I didn't have a personal history of domestic abuse, I, you know, everybody who writes something that, that goes into this level of depth needs to look for where those where those themes or channels present themselves in their own lives to try to get that real visceral feeling for it. So I'd be sort of really hunting down, you know, evidence of entitlement and all <laughs> sorts of things in my husband, um, which was not, like, awesome for our relationship. <laughs> the poor guy lived under the microscope for, like, three and a half years. Um and, and I think that I, you know, for me, I've always lived like a feminist, um, but I have not necessarily always identified as a feminist or understood the history. Um, yeah, okay. I just had certain, in, yeah, right. It's, you know, I think especially like I grew up on the Northern Beaches um, in the 90s and there might have been a lot of feminist activity going on in the universities, but it was not going on in the Northern Beaches. Like I don't recall feminism being brought up like once you know, um, so I didn't have a consciousness of that history um, anywhere near the extent, obviously, that I do now. And as I started sort of studying it from about 2014 on, I did get this. It's like coming to something for the first time and realising, like, why you've been you've confronted certain limitations in your life, but also just coming to terms with the horrible history um, of degradation and oppression, you know, and I was angry. Um, and it, you know, it took me a while. I had to really process that. Um, and I was especially like, it was especially difficult to be, to have that anger and then go, okay, I'm going to try to understand, you know, perpetrators, um, as having complex inner worlds and being sort of individual human beings because part of me just wanted to sort of like line them all up and throw them off a cliff, you know, like to be brutally frank. Um, and I guess that part of actually what brought me back from that was was actually my partner who's a psychotherapist that helps um and he um <laughs> he, he would he is also an editor and so he would read everything that I wrote and some of the early drafts I always wanted to have compassion for the reader and I always wanted to feel like that care was there. But I think sometimes I was just like, you need to just look this square in the eye and stop being such a pussy, you know. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and he's like, you can't, you can't publish all of that. You are going to freak people out. They're not going to be able to read that, you know. So I think in talking to him and really coming to terms with what it is to take someone's hand and lead them on this journey and really open their eyes to what's going on without making them feel overwhelmed um, or just horribly depressed by it. That was definitely a journey that I went on and it was not where I started. Um, so, but I hope, and I do get a lot of feedback that people really do feel, even though I don't sort of appear very often in the book as a, as a first person narrator, but that they do get that sense of me sort of holding their hand as they go through it and that care and compassion really is at the centre of it. Hmm. Absolutely. I definitely think that's the case. Um, and you are now sort of in the process, having have processed this, I guess, on some level, 
um, at, you're adapting it both to documentary for SBS um, and also a UK and a US edition of the book. Is that right? Is that right? That's right. Yeah, it's um they really like actually for the US edition, and I'm just doing the UK edition now. Um, but for the US edition, it was like replace every Australian statistic. You know, I've done a comparison uh, between colonization in Australia and North America. Like it's actually it's really substantial revisions. Uh, like because that. They, and it, yeah, it really is very substantial. That took months um, because they really want, and fair enough, it's a very Australian mm. book. So the case studies will, you know, the, the people's stories are pretty much all the same because it's universal to, to a certain degree, you know, not notwithstanding cultural differences. Um, but, but yeah, all of that detail um, has been changed. And then the, the documentary series that I'm working on with Northern Pictures, is um is great. It's really sort of taking the thesis of the book, but then developing it further. Um, and then I'm doing this great podcast series that I'm really excited about with the Victorian Women's Trust, which is looking much more at like what is the connective tissue between you know as we we're talking about earlier on the podcast, the various crises that we're confronting as a society. Like why is it that society feels so fucked right now? You know, and and so often we just look at oh, this thing is bad or this thing is bad, but we don't look at, like, well, what are the connecting fibres between all of these different crises? And so that's what I'm really kind of going to dig into but also look at, like, well, we're all on pause right now. I guess it's time to have a little bit of um, imagining as to what kind of society we want to come back to. And by that I mean as individuals, what sort of work do we maybe want to do on ourselves over the next few months or even couple of years um, in trying to understand ourselves better and just be better people in the world and create better outcomes. Yeah. That is so wonderful. (laughs) If you are one of those people who does want to see that happen, um, what's something that someone who's read this book and been affected by it do to make a contribution towards resolving this issue, do you think? I think um, developing insight and understanding is the first thing um, because you will know someone who's been through this and the best thing that individuals can possibly do is respond um, to people who come to them or who, who you suspect may be in this situation with a type of understanding um, that allows you to you really come at them with no judgment you know, and that that recognises that they are the expert in their situation and that even though you might feel like they need to do certain things or change certain things, that they may have reasons why they can't do that. Like, obviously, individuals could also, you know, lobby politicians um, for various, like, you know, the stuff around the family law system or they could lobby politicians to criminalise coercive control or they could lobby them to start women's police stations. You know, there's that sort of political campaigning but I think when I writing the book what and I've always felt this about journalism is that I've if anything political changes that's a bonus but I always write with the idea that the next time someone comes into contact with someone who's been through this experience they will respond to them in a way that helps them rather than further traumatizes them um, or or, or marginalizes them or isolates them and the same thing applied to when I was 
reporting on the um, uprisings in the Middle East, you know, every time I, and I, I, I was there as a correspondent for a year, but I also reported on it nonstop in 2011 from ABC Radio. And every time there was a story that talked about, you know, what uh, an Egyptian was doing to resist the government or, you know, the experience of um, somebody in Libya who was trying to protect their family from um, marauding hordes uh, from the government army, Every time he told that story, it was humanising those people so that the next time, I just thought, you know, the next time someone's interacting with someone from the Middle East, they have a more textured understanding of where they come from um, and they have a more textured understanding of just what it is to be a, a human in those conditions um, and also a, a newfound appreciation for the capacity for courage and resistance. Um, so that's this. I, I always just think that really what we're trying to do is to get people to develop better self-insight because everything echoes out from that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a that should be the goal of all um, really good writing. Really, is to absolutely. provoke empathy. Um, and I, I think I think you've achieved that honestly, and I, I'm so glad that you're working at adapting it into to increase the audience because I think it's a it's such a important book. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank um, you. I, I think we would love to keep talking to you, to be honest, but <laughs> <laughs> our podcast uh, usually only goes for 20 minutes. We've already talked for longer than that, and I don't really want to stop, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we'll have to for today. But thank you so much for um, talking to us. It's been a wonderful and um, very well-deserved honour. Oh, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure talking to you guys. Thank you, Jeff. And for those listening at home, uh, you can order a copy of See What You Made Me Do from booktopia.com.au or if you want to give your local bookstore some love in these troubling times, uh, you can do that too. And I hope you're all well and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.